You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. The last words of David. Kind of sad to be there, isn't it? (laughs) The last words of David, but... Um, as you'll know, in a couple weeks when we get into 1 Kings, we still got a, cha- a few chapters left with David um, as he's on his deathbed and, and uh, he, he can't stay warm at night. So they have to find a, uh, a young girl to lie in bed, kind of like a, an old school heating blanket, you know, uh, to keep him warm at night. And, uh, and he gives the final charges to Solomon, his son, before he passes away and tells Solomon to not let... Joab go unpunished for the blood that's on his hands and watch out for that Joab and this and that. So we've got a couple more chapters with David. And so um, it's not the last words of David because we're going to read some words of David later, but rather it's the last inspired words of David, you know, from the 70 some odd Psalms that David wrote uh, that are that are um, kind of like, uh, I want to say acquainted to him, but that's probably not the right word I'm looking for attributed to him. There it is. And uh, just have a thesaurus in here. It just spins around. Um, and, uh, and this chapter here, these seven verses, um, those are some inspired words of David. And so these are the last inspired words of David. It says, thus says David, uh, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. What a nickname for this man who... Thousands and thousands and ten thousands of men's lives met his sword on the battlefield, and yet one of his nicknames is a sweet psalmist of Israel. It says in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Man, if you have your pen, just underline that, because what you have right there is is a direct reference to the inspiration of the scriptures. A direct reference that, that the Spirit of God uh, moved David to write the Psalms and to write these seven, uh, seven verses here. Uh, the Greek word for inspiration is theopneustos, and it literally means that God breathed out the words on the page. First Peter tells us that no scripture is given by private interpretation, uh, but it's rather given by holy men of God as they're moved by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of controversy out there that the Bible is nothing more than men on opium highs or marijuana. I don't know about marijuana, but some strange drug fixes and that they were kind of just going crazy and they were writing these words out and that's all it is, just a bunch of crazy guys. But that's not what the Bible says. It says these were holy men of God. And they were moved or literally carried along by the Holy Spirit. They weren't passive instruments. They weren't robots that were completely controlled by God. And yet somehow in God's sovereignty, he was able to use man's personality uh, to come through you know, in Luke, we see the physician writing the gospel of Luke, you know, and in and, and Acts, you know, we see Moses writing the books he wrote. We see his personality coming out a little bit. And yet at the same time, God is moving or carrying them along to write these words. And they were holy men of God. And David was just one of them, moved by the Holy Spirit to write prophetic psalms, psalms that speak directly of the coming of His great, 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 great grandson, you know, Psalms like Psalm 22 that speak of a Psalm of the cross, uh, a form of execution that wouldn't even be invented for another 800 years. And yet David writes 
the very words, my hands and my feet, they pierced or they cast lots for my clothing. And he, and he gives a very graphic, detailed image of what's going to happen, you know, some 1000 years later when his great, 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 great grandson uh, dies on the cross for the sins of the world prophetically, not because he was on an opium high, but because the spirit of the living God who knows the end from the beginning spoke through him. And I just love that David recognized that the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Very palatable verse, isn't it? Think of Jeremiah chapter one and how Jeremiah, you know, the Lord's telling him, I'm going to have you write a book, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, oh man, I can't do it. I'm a youth. And the Lord's like, don't say you're a youth. I want to use the youth. And he put his hand on Jeremiah's mouth and put his words on his tongue. And the rest of the book of Jeremiah is all the, are all those words that were put on Jeremiah's tongue. And David knew what that was like. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word uh, was on my tongue. And man, I'll tell you, that's a study for another day. The inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy of the scriptures is one of my favorite studies to do. I own it. I want you guys to own it too. One of these days, we're going to do a series on that. And what a great way to defend our faith is by proving that this book that we hold in our hands is not just another book or another way, but it's the book. It's the word of God. It's the way. And you know, you guys can defend it. You guys know that it's a reasonable faith that we have. And you guys can defend that these are the words of God spoken. And so I can't wait to get into that. And I know Ryan has done that um, uh, for you guys. Um, and so I, I ex- I'm excited to bring even more of that to you. But uh, yeah, one of my favorite studies to do, but it's it's not what the Lord has for us tonight in, in entirety. Um, verse three, the God of Israel said, so here, here comes the inspired words. Here comes God breathing it out. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke, uh, spoke to me. And here it comes. Are you ready? He who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God, a man who's going to rule and rule well. You know, there's a lot of rulers who have ruled over men that have been unjust and yet their failures, uh, their legacy stops at their death. They're judged by God. They stand before him and they're, they're judged. And yet uh, a successful ruler over men must be lawful, must be righteous, ruling in the fear of God. The fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. And I'll tell you, that's something I've been crying out for more and more. I even have it in my journal. Um, Lord, help me to fear you more. Help me to be a man of integrity. And I'm not talking about, ah, <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, I just know that that lightning bolt's coming. I'm, I'm over here in Crook County and I've seen a lot of lightning bolts and I'm just waiting for something that I did. To, no, not that kind of like, ah, you know, but rather an Oh no, Lord, I don't want to hurt you. Lord, I want to please you. Lord, I know who you are and I reverence you. I revere you. I want you, Lord. I I just, you're the best. You're so great. And I want my life to be worthy of you. And I, everything that you hate, Lord, I want to hate. And a wise man, Solomon says, will understand that to fear God, you're going to hate evil. And a man that rules over men must hate evil. An exceeding reverence for the holy God he must have. When Moses' father-in-law Jethro was giving him counsel, he could tell that Moses was burning himself out trying to rule every case for the people. 
And he says, you know, raise up some holy men who can be wise counsels and they can judge the people when they have issues. Let those men take care of it. And he told, he told Moses that, um, these able men must fear God and be men of truth. And with that, It's kind of interesting that he adds that, you know, fear God and be men of truth. And then he says, hating covetousness, hating covetousness and place these men over to be rulers over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. A ruler, man, if you want to be a a man, a leader in your house, you know, before you can be a leader over the church or a leader, and I'm I'm learning this, I'm not, (laughs) you know, this is something I'm learning or a leader over a town or more and more the nation or as big as that might get. In your heart, you need to fear God and hate all evil. In fact, in Deuteronomy, when, when we just hear the Shema and the law is presented, uh, Moses tells them that the commandment, the real commandment, really the greatest commandment, is that you fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments. But Jesus takes it really to the foundation of that, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when you do that, when you love God, that's fear. Fearing the Lord is loving him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And when you're doing that, you're going to be obedient to his commandments because you love him with all you have. So you're not going to lust after that woman. Or you're not going to desire that man's possessions. Or you're not going to carve that other image to replace God and bow down to that image. Because you love God with all your heart. And so the foundation of fearing God is loving him with all your heart. And First John tells us... Uh, well, I guess it was uh, Jesus tells us, if you love me, keep my commandments. But then First John tells us that if you say you love God, but you don't keep his commandments, then you're lying and the truth is not in you. And so, man, as a husband, as a young husband, <laughs> you know, and as a young pastor, <laughs> very young, um, man, I want to lead the charge in just fearing God, hating evil, choosing righteousness, making a stand for righteousness, And so it's inspired. The Lord is telling us, even tonight, I believe it's a word. If you want to rule over men, you must be just or righteous or lawful, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. And yesterday I was reading this, preparing for today, and I'm outside and the birds are tweeting, you know, and I'm like, this is like today, you know this is me, you know, or whatever. Then today I'm outside reading and it's cloudy and thunderstorms are in the distance. I'm like, this is not today, you know? Um, so, but man, can't you just picture that the peace and the, that song, you know, man, if you're a guy that fears the Lord or, or women that we fear the Lord, we're just, that's the theme song for us. It's like the tweeting of the bluebirds in the morning and there's peace. And then David says, Although my house is not so with God. David, just being aware of his failures and, oh, what I did with Bathsheba and, oh, what I did with Uriah, her husband, murdering him and, oh, my house and, you know, um, the, the raping of my daughter Tamar by her half-brother, you know, and then Absalom killing him and then Absalom coming after me and trying to take my kingdom from me and then warring against my own son and just... You know, he's realizing his failure. 
as a man and as a king. And, and he can write from experience really here. But then underline this, the word yet. Okay. Although my house is not so with God yet. And guys, this is mercy. And even more so, this is grace. Just being blessed by God with amazing promises and amazing gifts and, and riches and inheritance in the, in the heavenlies and even in the physicalies. But realizing that even though my house is not versus four and, you know, the, the light of the morning. No, my son, my house is more like the thunderstorm, you know, but he goes yet. Oh, the grace of God. He has made me an everlasting covenant. You guys know what that everlasting covenant is? What's the everlasting covenant that's, that's going to last past David, past Solomon, past all the kings of Israel, past Israel going into captivities time and time again, past 2009, past 2050. What is that everlasting covenant? That there will be one sitting on the throne of David forever and ever. His son, Jesus. The greater son, greater than Solomon, greater than Absalom, who looked so handsome with that five pounds of hair he had on his head, is Jesus Christ, the obedient one, who's only found worthy to sit on this throne. The everlasting covenant, and David knew it, that his son would sit on the throne forever. And he prophesied about it. And you can read about it in Hebrews chapter uh, 1. And uh, he ordered in all things, uh, this, this throne is going to be ordered in all things and secure. Isn't that amazing to think that there's one throne that's going to be secure forever? That's the throne of Jesus. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as the thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. And so that's the end of the inspired words of David. But uh, we continue on in the chapter and study David's mighty men of valor. You know, it's been said that behind all great leaders are always devoted men and women. And certainly that's the case for David. Sometimes great men and women are recognized and sometimes they're not. You know, there's great men and women that serve the leadership in this church by showing up when no one else is here and cleaning the toilets. No one else is here and they pack out the trash. No one else is here and they fan out the smoke room over there, you know, and and clear that room out of the smoke. You know, no one knows it. I don't even know who they are, actually. But someone comes and I show up and the windows are clean and the floor is mopped and the bathrooms are clean and, and uh, you know, there's people that help movements move and leaders, leaders lead even when they're not seen. And some people are seen and receive accolades and, and glory. And certainly that's the case in David's life. But without these people, there'd be no leaders and there'd be no movements. When Absalom revolted against his father, you read of loyal friends of David. And I just love the story of Absalom trying to take over David's kingdom and David fleeing up the Mount of Olives and running to the wilderness. And yet just having the favor of the Lord through friends and, and, um, and you know, it's just a really, you couldn't write a movie any better than the story of David's life. But um, when Absalom revolted against his father, you read of uh, David's loyal servants. And, he, and he, he told them, all right, let's pack our stuff up and let's go. And they said in 2 Samuel, 
Samuel 15, the king's servant said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my Lord, the king commands. These servants loved David. He had loyal friends, not only loyal servants, but loyal friends. You guys remember Zadok and Abiathar, the priests who stayed back in Jerusalem and were spies and they'd send word back out uh, to David's camp when Absalom was planning to attack. You couldn't write a mission impossible any better than 2 Samuel chapter you know, 15. It just doesn't get any better than that. Um, and uh, you know, it's true that if you want to find out who your friends are, uh, you're going to make mistakes and you'll see if they're still around. And we know that David's mistake with Bathsheba led to even Absalom trying to take over his throne. And yet David had loyal friends and loyal servants who stuck by his side, even when he was going through a time of defeat and they stuck by his side. Second Samuel 17, we read of some unnamed women who helped, uh, Jonathan and, um, Ahimehaz hide as they were spies and trying to get back over and take the word, you know, these unnamed loyal women. And um, we read about these men who gave their resources, finances and food and, you know, mules and donkeys to help aid David in, in times of crucial trial. They perfectly at the right time brought these things and there were just loyal servants. And so here in 2 Samuel 23, the list just continues with these amazing, mighty men of valor. One of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament, you know, I like war movies and I like reading about military. And so, you know, you just, you can't take this out of my Bible. No way. You know, other things. No, I'm totally kidding. But, um, like, that's not funny. Um, so here we see a group of elite men that traveled and fought with David and protected David. They gave their lives for David. They were deeply devoted to David's leadership. Now, the crazy thing is, as you read this, I mean, I'm reading it today and I'm just like, wow. If I could have as much might in, in the cuticle of my pinky finger as these men in 2 Samuel 23 had in, you know, their mightiness, then I would be a very great man, I think. You know, I'm praying for this type of might. But the crazy thing is, is that these guys didn't start out mighty. They were normal men. In fact, they were less than normal men. Flip over there to 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. It's the first time we read of these guys. Uh, as you're flipping there, you know, I was saying you, you can't write a movie better than, than this, you know, and there's a show right now on TV called Kings, uh, and they tried to make a David and Saul story and, um, modern day. So Goliath was a tank, you know, and David took it out, you know, and, and, uh, all this stuff. And, and, you know, it has pretty good writers and stuff, um, they take the, the Jonathan and David thing, um, borderline, you know, what I'm talking about. It's like, come on. And then there's things that's like, that is so not biblical. But you just can't even do it. You know, you just got to read the Bible. And it's so much more powerful and so much more adventure. But picture it. Picture it at this part of the movie where in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, David departed from there. This is right after he uh, faked madness. Do you remember the story where he needed help and so... Uh, he pretended to be, have rabies, you know, so that he could get help. I won't do it, but foaming at the mouth and, you know, and they're like, isn't that David? Ten thousands and thousands, David. Don't look, don't make eye contact with him. I think he knows where we live. Um, but so for some reason, you know, it goes from rabid David to there he departed and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to, to, uh, there to him. And then get this, here's your mighty men of valor a few years earlier. Everyone who was in distress, 
Everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him. So here's the mighty men of valor years before. They're not mighty men of valor. They're weak men of debt. They're discontent. They're bitter. They're afraid. They're fed up with life. And so they came running to this cave at Adullam and they said, we want to join you, David. And isn't that a picture of Jesus? Maybe you're here tonight, you know, and you're discontent. You're bitter. Life has thrown you the wrong card. You know, you're in a hard place right now. Maybe you're, you're bitter. You're bitter at this new administration and you're lashing out at it, you know, or maybe you're just you've been hurt, you've been crushed. And if we were to see a picture of what you looked like on the inner man or the inner woman, you're in rags, you're bleeding, you're foaming at the mouth, you're tired, you need help. And here these people came running. They came running to David, crying out for help. And after spending time with David, they became mighty men of valor, warriors, in whom was not an ounce of fear. And isn't that what Jesus does? Maybe you can remember the day that you came to Jesus. Oh man, I was hurting. I'd just gone through a divorce or my wife just left me or I was in debt. Or maybe today it's you and this is the day. And you come and you're in shambles and you're in rags and you're torn and you're limping and you're coming here to Calvary Chapel. Why you are here right now Only God knows. But let me tell you what, just like with the men of valor who back then were men of shambles, when they were loyal and that day they became loyal to David, that day that they associated themselves with David was the day that they inherited the kingdom. And yeah, trials continued for years to come, but eventually they got to be part of the kingdom. And you know what? Today, if you will put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you come in your rags and you're bleeding and you're torn and you give your life over to him and you say, Jesus, I want to be loyal to you. I come discontent and bitter and in rags. Take my life. You know what? Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the inheritance. And you'll go to heaven one day and partake in paradise. And you know what? There will be years here where it's hard. There will be years where where you don't understand why things are going on uh, the way that they are, just like with the mighty men of valor. But I'll tell you what, man, there is an inheritance incorruptible. I told you guys that uh, when my dad passed away, um, our ranch was in bankruptcy. And my dad, we hadn't lived on the ranch for years. And when he died, uh, the bank came after my inheritance and uh, took most of our inheritance. And, and so I've just learned like, you know what? I'm never going to get that big inheritance that Bill Gates kids are going to get, you know? But you know what? I do have an inheritance in heaven. And the word tells us that it's incorruptible. Nobody can touch it. So what an incredible comparison there is in in coming to Jesus in distress that you tonight in distress uh bruised and beaten and battered and you can imagine that first day when they came to Jesus you know it's like Robin Hood's you know men in tights first come not men in tights but I think they were in tights you know the Kevin Costner one that's not in tights okay um you know and they come around and they're just a motley crew you know here come these men up into the cave to see David. And he's like, what are you? And they're all, please, sir, help us rob the rich and give to the poor, you know? He's like, okay, we're gonna have to lose the British accents here. But, um, you know, but a motley crew. Look around this room in Jesus. Aren't we a motley crew? And yet he wants to make mighty men and women of valor out of us. So it started out with 400 men 
there in First uh, Samuel. Pretty soon there's 600 men. And then soon after that, First Chronicles 27 tells us that the um, 37 men that we're going to read of here, each of them were captains. Uh, excuse me, I shouldn't say each of them, but many of them that we read are going to be captains of 24,000 each. And many of the men that we read of are going to be captains of that. And every month, uh, they take a turn uh, defending David. Okay, so we have David's bodyguard and, and 24,000 men, each one of them, you know, for, for, for 12 months. And many of them you'd read about in First Chronicles 27, uh, verse 1, you can read about that. But if you will remember, as we're just kind of setting, uh, what I'm trying to do is set the scene for you of who these mighty men are. You know, at first they weren't mighty men. We don't start out that way, but, you know, they were in shambles. Okay, we got that. But then notice how they became great. And we did a little study on this the other day, but if, and we'll, we'll just kind of, we won't spend too much time on it, but first, uh, second Samuel, just go back two chapters to chapter 21. Towards the end of, of David's reign in verse 15, you guys remember it? The Philistines were at war again with Israel. David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines and David grew faint. Then, so, you know, he's fighting, he's getting older, and everyone's trying to kill David. I mean, that is a head you wanted over your mantle was David, you know? So David's fighting, and he's getting tired. He grows faint. Then Ishbi-Banab, who was one of the sons of Goliath, the weight of his bronze spear was 300 shekels, and he was bearing a new sword. He thought he could kill David. But here comes Abishai. We're going to read about him on the mighty man list. Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterwards that there was a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of Goliath. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jehorajim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath. There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hands of his servants. And so the lesson that we drew out of this two weeks ago was that David was a giant killer and his men, his servants were giant killers. And the application that, man, you go to one day a school of ministry or Bible college and, and you'll learn that you will never take the people you're leading or the people you're discipling or your family. They're never going to go farther than you yourself have gone. They're never going to go deeper in the word than you as the leader are. They're never going to go deeper in the using of their gifts than you as a leader are. They're never going to go deeper in purity than you as a leader are. And I'll tell you what, it's a good thing. David started out strong as a young man when he came to give his brothers some food and he saw the giant standing down in the valley and the giants calling up threats to his people. And he goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? And, you know, he gets all kicks up some dust up there and says, let me at him, let me at him. And finally, when he gets to go down there, you know, he grabs five or excuse me, was it five? Oh gosh, what's wrong with me? Tell me, it was five, okay. Um, brain freeze. Uh, he grabs five smooth stones, you know? Uh, how many did it take to kill Goliath? One. 
He took five. He had such extreme faith. No doubt he saw Goliath's sons in the back. You know, that one brother could also be translated as a son. And he's got four sons back there. Big giant, big boys. Yeah, dad, you take them down and then we're going to come and eat him. You know, everyone's like, whoa, no, no, we're not. Um, you know, but, you know, so David goes down and, and he's hearing the taunting from Goliath. What is this dog? You, I'm Goliath. You know, you send me this little boy ruddy and good looking and all, you know, oh, this is going to be a, this is embarrassing, you know? And he says, you know, boy, I'm going to, you're going to be vulture food here in two minutes, you know? And David goes, what? You come to me with a sword and a spear and a big mouth? You know, I come to you in the name of the living God. And I'll tell you what, Goliath, I'm going to chop your head off right now. And you're going to be vulture food and everyone's going to laugh at you. And so he swings and one knockout, boom, the head's off, you know, everyone, all the Philistines are fleeing. And do you know what those Israelites were thinking when they saw that happen? I have goosebumps on my neck, you know? What did that little guy just do? What did that little guy just do? He just went out there. We were terrified. That big guy's going to hurt us and he's probably going to hurt us. Yeah. You know, and David, a man of faith, walks out there. And just lets Goliath have it. He led by example. And the people, you know, years later, his servants remembered as they're fighting. And here comes this big ogre looking thing. And they're just like, oh, I think I know who that is. And they're coming after David. And then those men say, uh-uh, David, little boy David killed Goliath. I'm going to go take him out right now. And they went and did it. His faith was contagious. Our faith is contagious. And our friends and our family, they're never going to go further than we ourselves are. And I remember as a, as a freshman in high school when my heart was just set on fire for Jesus. And I just wanted to share Jesus with people. And I remember these two, you know, I was a freshman and there were two seniors. Uh, one's name was Ivan and one's name was Joe Claire. And these guys to me, you know, as a freshman, these guys, they love Jesus and they just got saved that year and they got saved out of um, drug lifestyles. They were drug dealers on their campuses, you know, and they were good looking guys. They could have any girl uh, that they wanted, you know, they were um, really professional skateboarders, you know, and you know, here I am, this little kid that like came off the farm and, you know, but I love Jesus, you know, and, and here's these cool guys like, you know, and they got their Bibles with them and they, I remember driving by, I was visiting Corvallis from Lakeview and I'm driving by the 7-Eleven. My hands are up on the window in case you're wondering. And um, I remember seeing Ivan out in front. I was visiting. I hadn't even said hi to him yet in my visit. See him over at 7-Eleven and he's sharing Jesus with a guy. He's got his Bible out. He's, you know, 18 years old and he's sharing Jesus with this guy. And I just remember as a kid going, oh, I want to do that. I want faith like that. I want to be bold like that. You know, or Joe Claire, a senior in high school, in a 1600 person school, everyone knew Joe and they thought he went crazy that summer he got saved because he could have had anything that the world had to offer him. And yet now he's standing up on a picnic table out in the quad area at this high school and he's heralding the good news of Jesus and hundreds of people are around receiving Jesus. Um, they're not receiving by the hundreds, hundreds of people are around, you know, people are getting saved and his friends are making fun of him. But as a young, you know, freshman, 14-year-old, my heart beat fast, and I wanted to be like that. And I'll tell you what, these people who would watch David slay the giant, first of all, and then 10,000s and 10,000s, and he had no fear, but he was mighty in God. These guys wanted to be like that. They were giant slayers as well. 
And so the more that these men spent time with David, the more they became valiant in battle like David. Likewise, the more time we spend time with Jesus, the more time we spend with Jesus, the more valiant we are going to be in battle for Jesus. And we see that in the lives of the apostles. Let's look in chapter uh, four of Acts. I'll tell you, I love Acts, and we're going to go to Acts after we finish Luke. But um, I'll tell you, chapter four and five, chapters four and five are my favorite chapters in Acts. In fact, if you know the story, um, Peter and John are on their way to the temple uh, to pray. They meet a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man rises up and he, he's 40 years of paralyzation and he's walking and leaping and praising God and everyone knows that this is a legitimate miracle. And Peter, in boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to preach. And he says in verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Now, I didn't mention that they got arrested for preaching Jesus uh, in, the, in, the, in the temple and thousands got saved. And so they came and arrested them. The Sanhedrin came and arrested them. And so he says, man, you know, and he, he's so bold. In fact, he says, you crucified Jesus. And he's risen from the dead now. And just the boldness of Peter, who in, at the end of the Gospels, this guy was denying Jesus three times. He was denying Christ and the disciples were running away. And here they are after being arrested. They're boldly standing and proclaiming Jesus in the temple. And he even goes and says, verse 11, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. It's a prophecy that they all knew what he was talking about. And then verse 12, own it, you guys. Nor is there salvation in any other. Nor is there, let me repeat that. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Boy, that's boldness right there. There's no other name under heaven than the name of Jesus Christ by which we must be saved. And then verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. Yeah, I can think of one other guy who's like that. Um, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Just as David's mighty men of valor became more valiant and more bold and more able to do mighty acts in battle, the more time they spent with David. So when we as Christians spend time with Jesus, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more valiant you're going to be at proclaiming his name. The less time you spend with Jesus, the less bold you're going to be. It's a pretty easy chart to draw out in your Bible if you're confused. You know, more and more. I'll tell you what, I want more and more. I want people to look at me and they already do. They get the first part, right? I perceive that Rory Rogers is an untrained man. I mean, how many times have I fumbled over words tonight? It's like, I don't even think those are words. You can, I make my own words up. You know, it's like, blah, uneducated, one term of welding school, got a big L on my forehead, loser, you know, um, uneducated, untrained man. But when people look at me, I hope that they say, oh, but I know one thing. He's been with Jesus and I want to be like that. And may they look at you that way too. Paula, <laughs> you know, 
Something about that lady. I think she's been with Jesus. I mean, she's saying things about Jesus that I just can't refute. Matt, you know, in the taxidermy shop, popping an eyeball in a deer. You know, these eyeballs are worth $400. You know, all of a sudden he's talking to a hunter about Jesus. And this hunter's like, taxidermist really knows a lot about Jesus. You know, what's that all about? Did you go to Bible college? Nope. Started my own taxidermy business. You know, for some reason that deer had three eyes, but there's weird animals here in Prineville. They realized they'd been with Jesus. And I'll tell you what, when Goliath's sons saw the sword of these mighty men of valor coming right into their face, they go, "Uh uh-oh, these guys have been with David, (laughs) you know? And uh, I'll tell you what, that's that's what I want our legacy to be here. Then flip over one chapter in Acts to um, verse 27 of chapter five. So they end up getting freed. And then what are, the next day they're back there in the temple preaching again. And, uh, and they were strictly commanded not to preach. But in verse 27, they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Thank you, they said. You know, it's a compliment. And they meant it as a, as a, you know, look what you've done. You've filled Jerusalem with this Jesus teaching. It's like, all right, you know, um, that's a good thing. Uh, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so already these guys are bold, you know. They're like standing up on picnic tables preaching about Jesus, you know. They're, any chance that they get, their mouths are open. In fact, Paul says, pray for me that I might open my mouth about Jesus. People say, oh, you know what? I'm just a witness with my lifestyle. And you know, that's good, except for the just part. You know, we are to be witnesses in our lifestyle, but you know what? We're to open our mouths about Jesus. You know, we are to open our mouths about Jesus. And Paul said, pray for me that I might open my mouth and proclaim the gospel of grace. Pray for me for that. And I'll pray for you guys that, that we won't be shut mousetraps, you know, but our mouths would be open and our tongues would flutter the gospel. But then flip over to um, chapter 16, verse 20 of Acts. 16, verse 20. This is in Philippi. They uh, cast out a demon girl and, and a guy was mad about it because uh, she was bringing profit through fortune telling. So they had the Paul and Silas arrested. And it says, they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And then they laid many stripes on them and they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet uh, into the stock. And so the legacy that these guys were, they were so uh, valiant for the gospel that the description from the, the enemy's side was these guys are exceedingly troubling our city. And you know what? Right on, <laughs> you know, what is it with these people? You know, there's that one rich guy and Saturdays, he does some sort of like, he's just always out there, you know, on the street and he's got like 10 cronies that cruise around with him, you know, and what is it with that rich guy? You know, every Saturday, I'm trying to sit here at the tasty treat and eat my ice cream cone, you know, and here's Rich and his go ministry. And he's telling me about Jesus. And you know what? We got to put a stop. I'm talking to the mayor. We got to put a stop to this go ministry. You know, praise God. I hope that, you know, we've got so many witnesses out there that the mayor's like, we got to do something about this Calvary Chapel. You know, they're just nothing but, you know, firebrands for the gospel. And then over in verse seven, uh, chapter 17, this is the last Acts reference, uh, in Ephesus, or, or excuse me, Thessalonica, 
uh, an uproar happened where a whole entire Colosseum was filled with people angry. It started out being that they were angry about Jesus. And then so many people went there in a riot attitude that they were mad, but they didn't know what they were mad about. Hey, so what's this about? Oh, who? Well, I don't really care about that. Oh, okay. Kill him, you know? And, um, you can read about that in Acts because you can't make a movie about it. It's just too good in the book here. Um, and they say in verse 6, And when they did not find them, they drug Jason and some brethren out to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And you know what I'm thinking? I think I'm thinking about Ephesus with the whole Colosseum thing, so forgive me. Um, but these who've, But notice, you know, they exceedingly troubled that city, and now they've turned the world upside down here in Thessalonica, which is really for Jesus turning the world right side, right side up. But, but man, may we have that too. I've spent so much time with Jesus. I'm a firebrand for him. I just can't get enough of sharing the gospel. And um, I'm exceedingly troubling the city for the enemy's sake, and I'm turning the world upside down. And um, the more time you spend with Jesus, the more effective you're going to be at that. And so um, let's go ahead and, and flip back to Second uh, Samuel. So... David's mighty man, mighty men, you know, they started out weak and in and, and debt and uh, not very happy about life. You know, these aren't exactly the normal guys you choose for your army. You know, nowadays, if you go in, you go for your army interview and you're like, oh, you know, you're a little bit, they're like, this guy's not going to do too good in battle, you know, so we should just move him on side. But David takes him. Um, and, you know, again, that's exactly what Jesus does to us. He accepts us into his, his army. And so these guys were all written off as failures, just like we are written off as failures in the world's eyes. But you know what? Jesus accepts us. And um, so verse eight starts the uh, 37 mighty men or powerful champions, uh, it can be said. And uh, the first one we have, uh, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Josheb Bashabeth, the Tachamanite, chief among the captains. So this is like a number one awesome warrior man right here. And um, he was called Adino the Eznite because he'd killed 800 men at one time. So we've got uh, Joseph Bashbeth the Tachmanite, and uh, his nickname Adino. And I tried to, you know, make a little chart with a little picture of a soldier, and I put him on there 800 times. Can't do that many clicks because it takes forever to do 800 clicks. But and it it would have filled the whole screen depending on how big you made the guy, obviously. But it was like holy moly, you know, one guy in battle, you'd be like, take it back, you know, <laughs> you know, and you finally conquer that guy, and there's another guy, <laughs> you know, and you're wielding this heavy sword, <sighs> kill that guy, <sighs> you know, 800 times, not bullets, not like pew, you know, pew, you know, but you know physical battle, hand-to-hand combat that these guys were going through. And so this guy was a real uh, fabulous dude here because uh, he killed 800 men at one time. And um, I was reading today about an eyewitness account during World War II of a bomber, B-17 bomber plane over Europe. And actually, my grandpa was in the 8th Air Force, a B-17 bombardier in, in the Air Force. And so I, I, that especially caught my attention when I read about this, that it said, uh, a guy who was an eyewitness account to this raid, he wrote, the first big raid by the 8th Air Force was on a Focke-Wolf um, fighter pilot plant in Marienburg. And coming back, 
the Germans were up in full force and we lost at least 80 ships and 800 men, many of them pals. And uh, when my grandpa passed away, I had this big blue eighth air force book and oh, it just smells like grandpa. He was a smoker and I'm just like, grandpa, I miss you, you know, and pages are all yellow and you know, this is an old book and grandpa's in it a whole bunch of times you know and and you can read the charts of all the big bombing raids and this was one of them and it's just the numbers are astounding uh that the 800 men died 80 planes with 10 men each blowing up in the air or crashing down the things that my grandpa saw amazing i just get excited talking about the kind of stuff but the crazy thing to me is is it took the wrath of the german army unleashed against these planes flat guns fighter you know fighter planes you know to get 80 planes down, and yet all of that combined into one man uh, was the same, you know, were the same casualties back in David's day. I mean, this guy was a warrior. The German army would have been like, we need one of you, you know, and, um, or we can have all these fighter pilots, but we want you. And um, we want you, Joshua Bashabedevich, the Tachmanite. Um, and so they gave him a nickname, Adino the Eznite, which means, uh, Sharp spear, because it rolls off the tongue a little bit easier than Joshua Bashman, the Tachmanite. Um, sharp spear, a dino. And um, so, you know, can you imagine 800 men and how Satan would have loved to tell a dino, you can't do that. 800 men, do you know how long that's going to take to kill 800 enemy soldiers and how tired you're going to be? Don't even try, run, flee to the hills like everybody else. And yet he stood out there and stood his ground and, and conquered. And the enemy likes to tell you, you can't. Write a nice note to your friend at work and put God bless. What are you thinking? Don't do it. You know, you're like, nope. Jacob Ashad, the Tishmashad, the Tachmanite, he took 800 men down. I'm going to write this note, you know, or, or, you know, and then it gets bigger from there. Hey, just tell someone Jesus loves them or tell them that you're praying for them. And, uh, you know, Satan likes to whisper in our ears, you can't do it. Then we have, um, and yes, I am aware of the time. Are they aware of the time? I'm hurry here. Uh, um, where are we? Then we have uh, Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Yeah, go ahead. Make fun of his dad's name. Daria. Eleazar, the mighty man of Valier, will come back from his grave and take you down. Do not do it. Um, but it's actually pronounced Dodai, and you can just picture him with the bullies. It's Dodai. Leave me alone. Um, so Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they, were, uh, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, the men of Israel had retreated. So they're in battle. The men of Israel, his army retreats. He's out there by himself. And he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. Crazy. I mean, I've been framing before, framing a building, you know, and I've just been framing so much. And you guys know what I'm talking about, or probably not because you're in better shape than I am as framers. But you're just framing, 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 you know, you got the 24 ounce hammer, bam, bam, bam. And you're just like, whoo, whoo. And then you get those little, you know, or whatever. And You've just been hammering so much. I've had it to where my hand is frozen to the hammer. And I've had to, you know, but this is an actual condition. You can read about it in the, mid, in the Middle Ages, you know, men coming back from battle and having to soak their hand in hot water and pry the sword out of their hand. But this guy um, stood the ground and he was so weary and exhausted. His hand stuck to the sword, but his hand stuck to the sword. He was exhausted. Does that describe some of you here tonight? Exhausted in the battle, in the, t- in the battle against temptations, in the battle to just survive? You guys let your hand stick to the sword. His hand was, was weary. Now, um, in 2009, we go through similar battles where we need to stand our ground and, and hold on to the sword. In 2 Corinthians, flip over there, 
chapter 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. All the battles that you guys are going through, do you realize it's not just a physical thing, but that there's a spiritual realm to, to be aware of and to have discernment on what's happening in your life? We're not warring according to the flesh, but the weapons are of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And so we're in a very real battle. There's a spiritual battle going on, but our weapons aren't grenades and guns and hatchets and, and fighter planes. Uh, we read of our weapons in Ephesians chapter 6. Flip over there. Verse 10, you guys know this, a lot of you know it, some of you don't know it, but he says, finally, my brethren, and man, will you hear this charge today as a mighty man of valor being told this by God? Here's the charge to you. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. And then it says, putting on the armor, having all to doing all that you can in your power to stand, stand. And Eleazar did everything in his power to stand. And then pretty soon he's just wielding the sword. It's stuck to his hand. Man, if I just wield the sword, it's going to take people down. I can't let go of it. So, you know, I have this weapon attached to my body, you know. And in the same manner, we have a weapon attached to our spiritual arsenal. Now, pretty much most of the the, the armor pieces that were given are um, defensive, helmets, breastplate, belt, you know, shoes, things like that. But you're given a sword, an offensive weapon. You know, the, the, the sword is uh, the word of God. It's a, Hebrews tells us a sharp double-edged sword that's able to, to def- divide between uh, soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, man, when you're going through the spiritual battle, wield your sword, people. The sword is the word of God. And let me ask you, do you take your sword out in the battle with you? If you don't, you're foolish. You should have your sword with you and you should yield it or wield it, excuse me. You know, memorize the verses. You know, Psalm 119 verse 11 says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so man, when the battle's coming and the temptation is there, start speaking the scriptures. You know, it's a sharp double-edged sword. Put memory verse cards all over the places of temptation, all over your house, in your car, wherever you know you're going to struggle, have the, the word, the verses to, to stand in those truths. When Jesus was tempted, he did that. He yield, wielded the sword. I keep saying yield the sword, wield the sword of the spirit. How foolish it is to go into battle without the sword. And man, ever since I was in high school and I fell in love with Jesus, I'd pack my Bible with me to every class I was in, every class I was in. It was just this kind, the open Bible, but it was black. And man, I loved to wield that thing, every class. And man, you know, I wasn't trying to be religious, but I just loved it. And, and I'd be reading the Bible before class. And what a great conversation starter it was. Everyone wanted to know why I packed my Bible with me. But I was also able to defend the faith and say, well, you know, it says here this, you know, what do you have to say about that? You know, I packed it with me. You know, I keep it in my car. And I encourage you guys, pack the sword with you. Let it stick to your hand, just like it did with Eleazar. Um, we're going to cruise here because uh, it gets just a list of names here pretty quick. Um, 
Then we have Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. No, you know, they run off. But he, Shema, stationed himself in the middle of the field. He stationed himself. He put his feet and planted them in the ground and wouldn't yield ground. And he defended it and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now note this, it wasn't these men and how spectacular they were in and of themselves that brought the great victory. But two times, verse 10 and verse 12, it says, the Lord brought about a great victory. Uh, As a troop came towards him, he probably quoted last week's Psalm where David says, In in you, I can run against a troop. I can leap over a wall. And he probably was saying that as this troop of Philistines came running at him. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines had camped in the valley of Rephium. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. The things were done by the three mighty men. And so uh, what a testimony of the love and adoration these men had for their captain and... um, And yet, at the same time, uh, David sacrificed that water to the Lord. Um, Abishai, you read about him a lot in in 2 Samuel. What a hero he is. He's the brother of Joab, uh, the son of Zariah. And he was chief of another three. And he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. So there's you know, different groups of threes and thirties that these men of valor are brought to. So you can read all about Abishai in the last, you know, in this whole book, really. He's quite the hero, and he, he's quite a man of valor. Um, most of you know who he is by now. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah, oh, Benaiah. If you don't know who Benaiah is, he was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. So I kind of think of him with lions a lot, you know, killing the lion-like heroes of Moab. And then, I mean, it's such a a very visual man, you know, and, and snow slowly coming down and all of a sudden this fight breaks out, you know, in a pit with a lion in, in Benaiah. But he kills this lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Talk about courage, talk about bravery. And he killed an Egyptian. Listen to this, a spectacular man. No one has ever said that about me before, you know. Spectacular. Nope, not a word used for me. Um, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and so ben- uh, Benaiah went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. The more time he spent with David, the more sweet battle tactics he had. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among three mighty men. Was he, he was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, also the brother of Abishai, was one of the 30. And you can read about Asahel in chapter 2. Remember, they were fighting at the pools of Geboa. And then Abner started running away from the fight. So Asahel chased him down because he's fleet as a wild deer on foot, you know, and so he chases him down and Abner kept saying, leave me alone. I don't want to kill you. Save yourself. Just quit pursuing me. Take up some armor at least so you can protect yourself. 
no way, I'm like a deer, I'm coming after you, you know? And, uh, and so sadly, you know, Abner grabs a spear and thrusts it through uh, the blunt end through uh, Azahel, but uh, Azahel, a young mighty man of valor, you read about in chapter two of Second Samuel. Elhanan, the son of Dodo the Bethlehem, uh, of Bethlehem, Shema the Herodite, Elika the Herodite, Helez the Palalite, uh, Ira the son of Ikesh the Tekoite, Abiezar and Anathite, Mabini the Hushathite, Zaman the Hahohite, Maharai the Netophite, uh, Haleb the son of Banna the Netophite, Ittai the son of Ribai from Gibeah, the children of Benjamin, Beniah the Parathonite, Hidai from the books of Gash, Abialban uh, the Arbathite, Asmaveth the Burmite, Eliba, the Shalbanite of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, uh, you read about him being uh, a friend of David and that one of those spies when Absalom was taken over. Shema, the Herorite, I am the son of Sherar, the Hararite. I could pretty much just say anything you wanted and you'd think I was actually reading it, huh? Um, is he even reading anything from the page? Eliphalet, who looked like an elephant. No, okay, nothing like that. He got picked on as a little boy. The son of Hashabai, the son of the Michaelite. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Now remember, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandpa, and Eliam was Bathsheba's father. And they were mighty men of valor. And uh, Hezri, the Carmelite, Perai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, the Zoba, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Nehari, the Abiraithite, Armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zerai, Ira, the Irthite, Gerab, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, and uh, Bathsheba's husband. And so you see, again, just reminded of how David's sin didn't just affect himself, but even those that loved him and cared for him and had been changed by him. And um, sadly, Uriah, uh, a consequence of his sin, Ahithophel went and hung himself. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, log on to our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. You can also mail us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. If you'd like to contribute to this ministry, you may also do so through our website or by mail. Thank you for listening, and God bless.